Hey, welcome to the Cherry Hills podcast. During this Advent season, we're in a teaching series called Glory, where we're discovering that the glory of God, present at creation, is made visible at the incarnation. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Cherry Hills. Hey, my name's Luke. If we don't know one another, it is great to be with you in worship and to celebrate the glory of God during the Advent season. So we're going to be in John's Gospel chapter 1 today. If you've got a black Bible you want to use under the seats to be with us in the Word, it's going to be on page 860 in those Bibles under the seats. But there won't be a lot to follow along with. We'll be hopping around us in different places, but there won't be a lot to follow along with in John 1 because we're just doing one verse this morning. We're just going to reflect on one verse in John's prologue in his gospel this morning, and that's John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14, that we read during the candle lighting for uh, Advent. In uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, in Greek, as the Apostle John originally wrote it, it's just 23 words. So this is a very short text. It might lead you to believe that the the sermon is only going to be 23 minutes or less. (laughs) I will not come through for you there. But there's a lot to say about this one verse, because this verse has a lot to say itself, right? Like all great literature, John has chosen his words carefully, and he's loaded them full of meaning, and so they have the power to communicate the the scope and the depth of the gospel in just these short 23 words. So we're going to reflect and meditate on the glory of God together as it's revealed in John chapter 1, verse 14. This morning. Now, are we ready for our one verse? John chapter 1, verse 14. (laughs) John writes, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We'll spend some more time uh, in the coming week thinking about grace and truth. I want us this morning to focus on glory, the glory of the word made flesh who makes his dwelling among us. So let's just, before we unpack this, get some things on the table about glory, what glory is all about. Now, when I was a kid growing up and I thought about glory, I pictured myself at Old Trafford, the theater of dreams. That's Manchester United's soccer stadium, okay? Uh, 75,000 screaming fans uh, chanting my name and waving banners and singing songs. I've just scored the winner for the Premier League title. Glorious. I had a poster of Old Trafford on my wall growing up. My, my room colors were red and black and gold like the team, and it was, that was glory. To me, I know it's not glory to 99% of you, but to me, 12 years old, that was glory. What comes to mind for you when you think about glory? Have you had an experience or seen something that you would describe as glorious? I would guess that for most of us, there's a kind of common list of things that might come to mind. For some of us, when you think glorious or glory, you think of 
uh, some, some moment of in awe around natural beauty, a wonder of the earth, right? Like you've, you've ascended a mountain and you're standing on the summit above the clouds and you're just surveying the vista before you and that is glorious. It's the only way you know how to talk about it. Or maybe it's uh, sitting on the sand in the beach at sunset and dolphin fins are cresting the waves. I can picture scenes like that growing up in Florida, New Sermon on the Beach. I can picture those moments. It's glorious. Maybe for some of us, it's, it's not so much the natural beauty that comes to mind. Maybe it's just moments of sublime joy, like your wedding day, saying those vows, or the birth of your kids, things that you just treasure, it's precious to you. Or maybe it's an achievement, something that you've accomplished, right? You finally went back to school and you got that degree, or you became a successful entrepreneur and it's important to you. There's weight to that. It has tremendous value in the way that you think about yourself and what your life's all about and you're grateful. Each of these in their own way are all glorious things. Each of them have their own degree, their own measure of glory. If you're following in your notes, there are different degrees of glory. Paul will write about different degrees, different kinds, different levels of glory in his letters. There's different degrees of glory. Many things, as I've mentioned, are glorious, but not all in the same way or to the same extent, right? Sipping a cool glass of lemonade on a hot summer day, that's glorious. But man, when I see my son smile at me and I pick him up from daycare, he smells like this, just, just like wide mouth smile and he reaches his arms out. Oh, like that is a whole new layer, a whole new level of glorious, right? There's different degrees of glory. And here's what I want to tell us this morning, and here's why this conversation about glory matters. If you're following your notes, a flourishing life depends on our willingness to give things the proper glory that they deserve. No more and no less. The proper glory they deserve, no more and no less. Now, we may not often use the, the language or think of glorifying things. You might talk about valuing things, treasuring things, honoring things, taking good care of things, loving things, having affection for things, right? Whether people or objects or experiences or memories, to glorify something is to ascribe it worth, is to say this matters, it's important. It's to treat it as worthy of affection and care and honor, to consider something beautiful and meaningful and good. That's what it means to glorify something. Now imagine that you wanted to sell your car, okay? You're gonna trade up from that minivan. You're gonna go out and get the new Tesla cyber truck um, so you can drive around in what looks like a Elon Musk, DeLorean, right? You're going to go trade up, get rid of the Toyota Sienna. And uh, you go and you want, to tell, you want to sell your Toyota Sienna and you, you list it for $100. That minivan is going to sell very quickly, right? And you're going to be out a lot of money. Why? Because you've undervalued it, right? Like somebody's going to look at that and say, that is a steal, deal of a lifetime. You've undervalued it right? You haven't regarded it with the kind of worth that it actually possesses. And so you're out. That's a loss, right? On the other hand, if you went out and you tried to sell your Toyota Sienna for a hundred thousand dollars, 
you've been driving and it's got 200,000 miles on it, right? It's never going to sell. No chance. Because you've overvalued it. You've ascribed too much worth to this. It doesn't actually possess. It can't bear the weight of the glory that you've tried to give your Toyota Sienna. It can't carry all that because it doesn't have the capacity. It's not really that valuable. It's not worth that level of affection and care and honor and money. You have to be able in life to give things the proper glory that they deserve. No more and no less. We make these kinds of decisions day in and day out in our lives where we assign value to things according to the goodness that we see in them. And how well that we do this is the difference between health and unhealth in our bodies, in our relationships, in our responsibilities, in so many other things. And ultimately, there's spiritual significance to this as well. Life and and death are at stake. Life and death hang in the balance in our capacity to discern what is truly glorious. And things go poorly in our lives when we get it wrong. When you place work over family and people, that will not go well for you. When you place entertainment over education, that will not go well for you. When you place the longing to prove that you were right over the longing to be reconciled to people, that will not go well for you. These things matter in the course of our lives. And when we get it wrong, it hurts us and it hurts people. It's what St. Augustine called disordered love. Disordered love. Our priorities, they get bent out of shape. We put things in the wrong place. That's disordered love. It's saying something's glorious and it's not really as glorious or it's more glorious than we give it credit for. That's disordered love. Getting all those day-to-day choices right, all the myriad things in our lives, getting that right starts with getting first things first. Determining what's at the top of the pyramid. What's going to hold the most weight, be the most important thing in our life? What is most glorious? What occupies that top spot of value and goodness and meaning and honor? What deserves our attention, affection, and devotion more than anything else, more than everything else? Getting that right is where it all starts. If we can get that one thing right, the dominoes, they start to fall. Right? Things start to find their proper place when we can put that very first thing right then things start to find their shape and their proper meaning in our lives. So, all this in mind, what is most glorious? According to John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, he tells us, the word made flesh. The word made flesh. Now that's a way of saying God. God is most glorious, no surprises there. But it's more than that. Because as Christians, we don't just worship an idea we call God. It's not just an abstract thought of divinity that we have an affection for as the people of God. No, no, no. We worship Christ and him crucified, the word made flesh. 
We fall in love with this particular person whom we can know and connect with and speak with and be sent by. That one that we call Jesus, God, the word made flesh. That is the one whom our hearts adore. That's who John says is the top spot, the top glory in all the universe. It's the word made flesh. Now, as Steve taught a couple of weeks ago, word, the logos, that's a a common familiar title for Jesus in John's gospel and in much of the early Christian literature. This is a favorite way of referring to Jesus. He goes by many names and many titles, but the word is one of the really big ones early in the life of the church and in the New Testament. And basically it means the eternal son of God, the preexistent son of God. The word is the meaning of life. It's the divine logic and reason that animates and creates and is the reason for everything that exists. That's the word. And John says in verse 14 that the eternal word, the son of God who existed before creation and beyond time became flesh. He became flesh. And as he walked the earth in the first century Roman province of Judea, he was called Jesus. And when John says that the word became flesh in the person of Jesus, he is telling the Christmas story. This is the hope of Advent, that the word became flesh. He's he's referring to the Holy Spirit who hovers over Mary, who conceives and gives birth to Christ. He's talking about the baby who's born in Bethlehem. And the word became flesh doesn't just mean that God disguised himself as a man. It doesn't just mean that Jesus only looked the part of a human. John means something far more scandalous, far more mysterious, and far more wonderful than that. John is saying that the divine nature that God from the moment of the Holy Spirit's miracle in the virgin womb, has forever united himself to a human nature. The divine and human natures will coexist in the person of Jesus. The fourth century writer in modern day France, Hilary of Poitiers, he says this, he did not lose what he was, but began to be what he was not. He did not cease to possess his own nature, but received what was ours. That's the miracle that we call the incarnation. That's the miracle of Christmas. That's the hope of Advent. That's the word become flesh that John is talking about. Now, the idea that God would or could become human was outrageous and offensive to much of John's Jewish contemporaries. But in Jesus' own ministry, he's continually saying that this very event which so scandalized people was the fulfillment of the whole story. Like the whole thing has been leading up to this moment. And Jesus sees himself at the center of it all. All of Israel's scriptures are pointing to him. And so Jesus will say in John chapter 5, verse 46, if you believed Moses... You would believe me, for he wrote about me. I don't know how familiar you are with the books of Moses, but Moses never mentions Jesus, or word, or Messiah, 
He's not outright explicit predicting Jesus, but Jesus says at the center of what Moses was writing, he's talking about me. John would later then cite a prophecy of Isaiah as he's dealing with some people who are skeptical and unbelieving the claims of Jesus. And after quoting from Isaiah, John then says these startling words, John chapter 12, verse 41. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. Do you remember the vision that Isaiah has of God in the throne room? He says, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about him. The famous reformer and theologian, Martin Luther, he published a German translation of the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament in 1523. And he wrote in the preface to that translation of the scriptures. He says this, the scriptures of the Old Testament are not to be despised, but diligently read. Here you will find the swaddling cloths and the manger in which Christ lies. The scriptures are the manger in which Christ lies. And just as the shepherds would go to Bethlehem to find Christ, so we go into the scriptures to discover the word there all along. If you're following in your notes, the coming of the word made flesh into the world, the glorious appearing of Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's hope. It's what was written all along that now in these latter days we can see, we can understand. It's the mystery has been unveiled before our eyes in the person of Jesus. He is the fulfillment of Israel's hope. And John is hinting at this in the verse that we're reflecting on today. John says that the word made his dwelling among us. He didn't just become flesh. He made his dwelling among us. And that's a phrase that's easy to overlook as if John is just saying, you know, he was here. He walked the earth. And he's saying that, but he's saying more than that. John uses this um, Greek verb, skenao, skenao. And it's not a particularly unusual verb or word choice to use. But what is interesting about it is this the word for setting up a tent or, or, or setting up an establishment, settling down somewhere, moving into the neighborhood, right? Beginning to belong to a community, taking up residence somewhere. So if you are to go on a camping trip, right? And you're like unloading your cyber truck and you're getting your tent poles out of there and you're getting the whole deal set up, you know, you're making your fire and getting your pots and pans, your sleeping bag, you're setting up camp. That's skenado to take up residence in a place. And what's extra interesting about this is that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Jesus and John and many of the apostles of the early church read, they were familiar with it. The tabernacle is called the skene. It's the noun form of the verb. It's the skene. In other words, you could just as well translate John 1.14 to say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. John is hinting, he is suggesting, he is echoing Exodus and wanting us to see that the glorious presence of God who was in Israel's midst in the beginning has now come in the person and the body of Jesus. The tabernacle has been established once more. There's a new temple. The locus of the presence of God is here in the physical person of Jesus, the word made flesh. 
He's made his dwelling. God has come and visited his people once again. Like in the days of old, here he is now in Jesus, the word made flesh. The sacred space, the holy fire, God in our midst, Emmanuel. And you know, the central question of of Leviticus, of the books of Moses, perhaps of the whole Old Testament is how shall we go to the presence of God's glory and not die? How is that gonna be possible? Knowing what we know about God, how is it possible that we shall go to the presence of God's glory and not die? And the answer that's suggested in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus is this. God's glory will come into our midst and he will die. That is the paradox. That is the mystery. That is the glory revealed in Jesus. And so John says, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. We've beheld it. That word glory is doxa in Greek. It's where we get the word doxology. Doxology, to sing the glory of Jesus, right? Doxa is that thing that makes Jesus worthy of love, worthy of devotion, worthy of obedience. And John says, we've seen it. John's been captivated by it. He's beheld it. Now, how is it that John says that he and others have seen the glory of Jesus? In John's gospel, there are two important ways. Two important ways that the glory of the Son is revealed to people. The first way, if you're following your notes, the words glory is revealed in his miracles. John calls them signs, moments of disclosure where you get to sort of peek behind the curtain and get a glimpse that, oh, this isn't just a man. He's more than that, right? In John chapter two, verse 11, after Jesus has turned water into wine at a wedding, John says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Jesus makes known his glory through signs which point to his divine nature. He's a human being just like you and me, human body, human soul, human will, fully human, truly human. But at moments in his ministry, he worked wonders that glorified God and revealed to people what was there behind or in addition to the human nature that God was in their midst. He makes known to people his sonship, that is his relationship to the father. When Jesus went to Bethany on another occasion to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus' sister, Martha, she had wanted Jesus to come earlier, but now that he's there and Lazarus has already died, it's been four days, and so she protests. I think the King James says, he stinketh. She's saying, um, he's already decomposing. You're too late, you know? So she says, "Don't, don't do anything, it's done. Jesus wants to roll the stone away anyways. And in John 11, verse 40, Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You'll see the glory of God. His signs, his miracles make known his glory. But there's a second way. 
There's a second way, and I think it's the chief way. It's the pinnacle. It's, it's the way that the word's glory is revealed. If you're following in your notes, the word's glory is revealed in his crucifixion. It's revealed in his crucifixion. Does that surprise you? It absolutely startled, staggered, baffled the apostles and Jesus' own contemporaries. Didn't know how to make sense of it. There's no category for this kind of thing. John remembers Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem uh, before he is to be killed. And as he remembers this moment in his gospel, right, he recounts how Jesus is greeted by the people with celebration and welcome, you know, a king has come. And so they say, Hosanna to the son of David. And John remembers this. And then he writes in chapter 12, verse 16, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Only after he was glorified. Did you catch that? Only after he's glorified. See, John had already seen Jesus' glory time and time and time again in miracles. He'd seen the feedings. He'd seen the healings. He'd even seen the resurrections. He'd seen Jesus do big things. But if you're asking John, Jesus hasn't yet been glorified. There is, we talked about degrees of glory. There is still a a glory par excellence. There is a glory yet to come where the true nature, the true identity of Jesus as the manifest glory of God is going to be made known to people. And you might think that this is merely or only talking about Jesus' resurrection or his ascension, and it is, but it includes the prior. It includes what comes before. And this is the essence of Jesus' glorification. It's the moment of his glorification, the cross. That's what John And Jesus himself believed was the beginning of Jesus' true glorification. Look at what Jesus teaches in John chapter 12. It says in verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. The hour has come to be glorified. He goes on in verse 27 and says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. So in what moment, in what hour of Jesus' life would we say, that the glory of God is most on display, that God is most glorified. It's at the cross. It's at the cross when the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us is exalted on that pole and he's given the crown of thorns and he's anointed in his own blood and he's declared the king of the Jews. That for Jesus, for John, for the church, is the revelation of divine glory, right? There's glory revealed, 
When Jesus is born and the angels sing, there's glory revealed when Jesus heals the sick and casts out demons. But there is an altogether different glory that is made known when Jesus gives up his life for the sake of those whom he loves. To gather together for God a people, to bring the fold together, to bring us into his midst. He offers up himself to make this happen. And the reason it's so glorious, and Paul is just beside himself, read Paul's letters, he can't even fathom this, right? The reason it's so glorious is because in the cross of Christ, all the wisdom and power of the world is put to shame. And all you're left with is the grace and the truth of God that's made known. If you're following in your notes, Christ crucified is the preeminent revelation of the glory of God. Here's what this means. Don't look past the humanity of Christ to see the glory of God. Look at the humanity of Christ to see the glory of God. It's not in spite of the incarnation and the crucifixion that God's glory is revealed. It's through the incarnation and crucifixion that his glory is revealed. The glory of God is in one sense hidden in the manger, but in an altogether different sense, it's heralded in the manger. And that is what we are celebrating in the season of Advent and at Christmas time. If you're following your notes, if we truly beheld the glory of the one and only Son, as John has, if we loved Christ as supremely glorious, we would flourish. It's a difference that it would make. We would flourish. And I'm not talking about health and wealth. I am talking about a life of good, a life of beauty, a life of meaning, a vitality, and a virtuousness, despite all of the simplicities and the sufferings that we face in life. Ultimately, I'm talking about an unending life, a life that overcomes death. Even if your body is sown in dishonor, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, right? It is raised in glory, doxa. Raised in glory. So being enraptured with the glory of God in Christ, that gives us both a future hope and a present reordering of our lives right now around the person of Jesus. Pastor J.R. Vassar, he puts it this way. He says this so well. What matters most is what is real. If we are going to be whole and flourish, we must move in the direction of ultimate reality which means we need to center our lives on the right thing. We must glorify what is most glorious. We must love what is most lovely. We must value supremely what is supremely valuable. The only way out of thinking too much about our own glory and loveliness and value is to be captured by a vision of the glorious, lovely, supremely valuable God. That's the way out of obsessing about our own glory, which we are so apt to do, and getting all our priorities wrong and, and valuing things too much and too little, being captivated by the wrong things. The only way out is to be captivated by what is supremely glorious. 
And I was looking at uh, some photos from the past year, and each one, it evokes a different, a different memory. You know, it's, it's resurfacing feelings and thoughts for me, right? It's, it's reawakening love when I see that picture of Henry or Mara or friends, the places I was able to visit, the family I was able to spend time with. Like new joys are coming to the surface. I'm stepping back into these moments from the past and it's doing something to me in the present. It awakens that new love and joy and renews my affection for the people in those memories as I'm looking through those photos. And for the same reason, we tell the story over and over and over again about the baby born in Bethlehem and the man who died on the tree. Because as we rehearse this narrative, this announcement of the gospel, in remembering the gospel, the glory of it all comes alive in our hearts again. And we are changed on account of it. It renews our affection for the Lord of glory. And our only hope to be free of sin, the disordered love of lesser things, is to be captivated, to behold the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. It's what the uh, 19th century um, Scottish Presbyterian minister, Thomas Chalmers, he called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. So let me return to the earlier question. What is most glorious? I spent all this time talking about what John thinks is most glorious. What do you think is most glorious? What has the spot of supreme value and worth and affection and devotion in your life? What has captivated your attention? What does your heart adore? And to answer that question, you can't give me a creed. You can't tell me what you profess. I'm not asking about your confession of faith. To answer that question, you have to look at your budget, your calendar, and your screen time. To answer that question, you have to consider your motivations for the work that you do or the art that you make or the principles behind your parenting. You have to think through what makes you tick, the things that keep you up at night and that occupies your daydreams, what steals our time, and demands our affection and attention, that is what we most worship. That's what we consider supremely glorious. Now I've noticed for me, uh, I have a tendency to do really well at serving people and helping people in the church and beyond because it's easy to know I'm gonna get a pat on the back for that, isn't it? It's easy to help people and to come through for people and to be dependable and to do the right thing when you'll be celebrated for that, when you'll receive some glory and admiration for that, when you'll get a nice card or somebody's going to applaud you. Then it's easy to come through and to do those things. But man, if you saw me at home, it is a lot harder to get my butt off the couch and go help Mara clean the kitchen because I'm not going to get a trophy for that. Nobody's going to send me a note in Pastor Appreciation Month, you know? Those are the things that lie in the hidden parts of our lives where there's no real glory to be found from other people. 
And I just, I know this to be true. If I were more in love, and if I really beheld the glory of God and didn't need to seek my own glory and praise from people, it would be much easier for me to serve and help and live the way of Jesus in the hidden parts of my life. And I would care a lot less about how well I express that in the visible parts of my life. Do you understand? This is why it matters that we really have a genuine affection for the glory of God and not for our own glory or for the glory of lesser things. So I can't, I can't give you a challenge this morning. Love God more. Worship better. I, I can't. That's not what I say to you this morning. All I can say to you is, is the question. All I can do is offer you the question and the invitation. Isn't he worth it? Isn't he good? Isn't he glorious? So what is it that's capturing your vision these days? Thank you for listening to this week's teaching. If you'd like more info on our church, you can visit our website or find us on Facebook.